0: Hey folks, and welcome back to The Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are starting a new series on the imprecatory Psalms. This series will run for the next month or so. In this first episode, Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Trevor Lawrence We'll be discussing the Psalms in general and whether or not those categorizations of imprecations and laments, etc. are useful for us in our reading and singing of the Psalms. Do check out their link in our show notes to the recently released Theopolis Liturgy and Psalter. That Psalter has several dozen Psalms set to chant tones that you can begin singing in your family worship and in church. We really hope that you enjoy this discussion and enjoy this new series. And here are Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Trevor Lawrence, and Alistair Roberts discussing the Psalms.
1: Welcome to The Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lighthart and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts, James B. John, and our special guest, Trevor Lawrence. One of our regulars, Jeff Myers, is not with us today. Uh, He's uh, speaking at a conference in Monroe, Louisiana, so we wish him well there and look forward to having him back on the podcast uh, when we uh, resume in a couple of weeks. Brian Moats, as usual, is with us, uh, controlling the dials and making sure that everything gets recorded. Uh, we're doing a, a brief series, uh, starting with this episode, on imprecatory psalms. This was suggested, uh, we had Trevor Lawrence of the Cataclysm Institute join us for a, a podcast a few weeks ago on the l- last chapters of Acts, and uh, Trevor did his PhD work on imprecatory psalms, so it was suggested that we devote a few episodes to uh, thinking about those psalms in particular. So this is the first of those. We'll have a, about a month a month's worth of episodes on the imprecatory psalms. And today we're just going to talk about uh, the different sorts of psalms and the Psalter in general before we plunge into questions about curses and implications and, and how Christians should use those psalms. But just to set a little bit of context, of course, uh, those of you who are regular listeners to the podcast know that we have uh, a great affection for the Psalter. We are advocates of psalm singing in churches and particularly of psalm chanting. Uh, We believe that uh, that should be the backbone of the church's hymnody. We are not exclusive. uh, We don't believe in exclusive psalmody, uh, as some some Christians do, who believe that uh, only the psalms should be sung in Christian worship. Uh, but we do believe that uh, psalms should be preponderant should have a, a major presence in our worship and in our singing and that the tonality and the and the the range of emotion and experience and setting that the psalms present should uh, shape the way that hymns are written and the the hymns that we sing and uh, use in worship so we've uh, produced a a partial psalter that was one of the projects we worked on Uh, Last year in 2020, uh, we were able to put together an initial edition of a Theopolis Psalter uh, that included about 40 Psalms, uh, Jim Jordan translations, and most of the settings were uh, settings that uh, Jim Jordan put together for chanting. Uh, We're still working on that Psalter, and we have a three-year plan to uh, put together the uh, complete Psalter. These things always take a little longer than you expect, so uh, we're not promising that it'll be available in three years, but that's our target. Uh, and we're h- hoping that uh, we can get uh, full translation and, and new settings for the Psalms so that can be used in churches and in homes and so on. In addition to that, we also have, uh, we're planning to have our first intensive course in the spring uh, devoted to the Psalms. That'll take place in March. The uh, registration is uh, up on our website. Uh, so you can register for that course now. James Hamilton, who teaches at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, is uh, coming to teach the bulk of that course. Jim is, uh, is working on the final stages of a, of a, a major commentary on the Psalms. He's uh, written uh, on typology and, uh, uh, and, and biblical theology in ways that overlap very nicely with with some of the things that we do here at Theopolis. So we're looking forward to having Jim Hamilton with us in March. And uh, in addition to those lectures on the Psalms, uh, we're going to have some practical exercises. Paul Buckley, who is our uh, Psalm Chant Guru, will be with us in March, and he'll be spending a couple hours a day training students to chant the Psalms and introducing new Psalm settings to us. So that uh, that's another contribution that we want to, that we're making to the uh, to promote Psalm singing in the churches. So the the uh, taking a break from a uh, longer series that we've been doing and doing a short series on psalms fits with our agenda for the coming year and uh, just our overall agenda. The first uh, episode in this episode we want to devote to just thinking about the Psalter in general and I'll just uh, throw open a kind of a kind of a soft question uh, to the rest of the group. Uh, there's uh, over the the last uh, 150 couple 100 years has been a good bit of discussion of different forms of psalms, different genres of psalms uh, that have, uh, uh, have been used to classify uh, different psalms, lament psalms, royal psalms, wisdom psalms, psalms of ascent, those, those kinds of categories. Just a, an opening question, what do you think about that classification? Are, is that helpful? Uh, what are some of the limitations of that classification? What classifications have you found most helpful? There are different ways of classifying the Psalter that uh, overlap, but aren't always identical. So what do you all think about those uh, approaches to the Psalter?
2: I suspect much depends upon how you use these taxonomies. If you're thinking in terms of hard and fast categories that things must fit into, and if there's any divergence, then there's something wrong with the psalm, then clearly there's something awry there. Um, But in terms of recognizing family resemblances between psalms and having a sense of the expectations that we bring into a particular Type of psalm that's set up um, in a way that reminds us of some other psalms, that can be a very helpful initial step in coming to grips with the particular message of a psalm. And I think it's the case more generally for Scripture, that we come into any piece of Scripture with a certain set of expectations about that piece of literature. It's not something that um, substitutes for close attention to the particular thing that we're um, looking at but actually can direct our attention in a very helpful way if those categories are held appropriately. And I think, for me, holding those categories appropriately is recognising that the text's meaning is often found as much in in its dissimilarities as in its similarities from other forms of literature that are of the same essential kind. And also recognising what some have spoken of as hybrid psalms that bring together a number of different elements, these mixed types, that those aren't inappropriate, those aren't somehow abnormal. Um, Rather, our categories need to be humble before the text to recognise that the text should lead the categories rather than the categories presenting demands upon the text that if the text doesn't match up, then the text is found to be deficient.
3: Yes, I think that chastened welcoming of these sorts of categories is quite right. Uh, It is really helpful uh, to be able to note going in, ah, this is a psalm of historical recital, or this is a uh, hymn of thanksgiving that's celebrating God's deliverance. But uh, Alistair, as you said, often these prayers are doing more than one thing at the same time. And so if we use those hard and fast categories to limit the the attention and our openness to what the psalm may be seeking to evoke and stimulate in us and in the church we will have hamstrung the dynamic language and and quality of these prayers. You talked about hybrid psalms. It, it's really interesting to look at a psalm like Psalm 119. This is a Torah psalm. It has elements of wisdom, but it's also got features of lament, and suffering plays an intense role in the movement of Psalm 119. You move into the center of the Psalter at Psalm 72. It's the psalm of Solomon. It's a royal psalm, but it's also got profound features of imprecation and pleas for judgment that suggest Uh, a setting of suffering underneath. And I think recognizing that just because a psalm uh, possesses features of one category, uh, that doesn't limit the other ways that it may speak to us and fashion our speech to God as well. They are dynamic prayers made for the dynamic life of communion with our King.
4: Yeah. Just to expand on that, a psalm can't necessarily be categorized even if we sort of accept the idea that you can categorize them just by a, a kind of verse count because the shape of it can be really important a psalm like i don't know psalm six most of its um verses can be devoted just to a description of, of suffering and of lament but it, it then ends triumphantly that the, the lord has heard my prayer and my enemies shall be ashamed and and so on and that just sort of changes the whole feel of of the thing, and so I think that um, uh, shape can be very important in our categorization, rather than just word count.
1: Mm-hmm. Let me let me play a devil's advocate a bit here and uh, uh, ask: Give me an example of a psalm where your understanding of the psalm was shaped and profoundly helped by having a category to to place it in, to have a have a having some kind of label or classification.
3: One possible example uh, would be the wisdom psalms, like Psalm 37 and 73. Now, as is the case with a lot of these categories, close attention to the text itself will alert you to what is going on here. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's not as if uh, some superimposed label is revealing something about the text that wasn't there in the details ready to be found out. And yet, being aware that sometimes the Psalter speaks in particular ways can prime us uh, in, in, I think, helpful directions. So knowing that Psalms 137, 73, for example, are wisdom psalms, I think shapes our approach to those texts. Uh, they talk often about the blessing of the righteous and the destruction of the wicked. And, and yet those aren't reified realities. They We often talk about it uh, when we we look at the book of Proverbs. These are not hard and fast promises about right. what will be in every experience and every circumstance. And yet they are revealing something true about the world, something that we are to hold in our hands and explore the dimensions of reality explore our own experiences and the experiences of others to see that there are profound truths here. And sometimes like the psalmist in Psalm 73, when we see the prosperity of the wicked in spite of what we are told will ultimately be their fate, we must go to the sanctuary of God and discern their end.
1: Yeah, that's helpful. And it occurs to me that one way that the classifications might be useful. Is whatever help they might give us in interpreting a particular psalm, they can help us in thinking about the uses of the psalm, whether liturgically or devotionally. If we have the, if we have a a general sense of which psalms have which you know which of them have uh, particular particular shapes, then if we're in a situation where we need uh, where we're, we're lamenting, where we need reassurance of God's Care then we. I mean, we, we have we have psalms we can go to because of the because these classifications give us kind of ready-made categories.
2: I would say beyond that, that these classifications are not just things we are bring to the text itself. So if you're looking through um, some of the later psalms in um, the Psalter, you'll see that they have titles as songs of ascent. Um, there are other categorizations that we have within the text itself however you regard the superscriptions, that these are not um, foreign categories, are also seen in the arranging of the psalms. So certain psalms cluster together. Certain psalms are found at key seams. So the royal psalms, as many have noted, tend to be more commonly found at the beginning and end of books internal to the Psalter. So um, Psalm 2, um, Psalm 42, 72, Um, and a number of others that are found at seams of the book are royal psalms and 89. This is not accidental. It's something about the structure of the book itself. And so recognizing the affinities between the form of literature can also help us to recognize something of the form of the book more generally, and vice versa.
1: That raises a question that I'm curious to know more about. I don't don't know much about it. Uh, You do have, as Alistair said, superscriptions, descriptions of the psalms that uh, are either genre descriptions or maybe musical descriptions, setting descriptions like the songs of ascent. But as far as I've been able to determine, most of those most of those terms are have uh, either obscure or unknown meaning. The song of ascent is a is is different, but uh, I mean, what is a shagion? Does anybody know? Does anybody not just the four of us, but does anybody know what a shagion is? Um, Psalm seven is a shagion of David, which he sang to the Lord. Or uh, Mictan, are there studies that have uh, given plausible definitions to those Hebrew terms?
3: I am not aware of any uh, hard and fast definitions that would prove helpful to answering that question. Most of what I have come across in my own study has basically been like the footnotes in a lot of Bibles, that this is probably a musical or liturgical term. Mm -hmm. That was uh, useful in uh, the temple liturgy of Israel. Now, there are interesting studies that note how uh, some of those terms, as Alistair was saying, not only types of psalms are clustered together, but even terms in superscriptions are clustered together or show a discernible development in certain parts of the Psalter. And so may have played a role in, the, the way that the the final canonical shape of the psalms were arranged, but I'm not I'm not sure of any uh, immediate uh, answer that that would you know, offer something fruitful to the question you were asking.
2: There are a few psalms that we have beyond the songs of ascent that have very specific content contexts. So Psalm thirty eight and seventy um, are both for the memorial offering, and um, we have. I think it's ninety-two, which is for a song for the Sabbath, um, in the mm. superscriptions.
1: Yeah, so so specific liturgical settings. Yeah, that's helpful. I'm, I'm also curious about the what's going on in the origin of this uh, genre, this form critical analysis of the Psalms. What's motivating that? That's not necessarily a skeptical or suspicious question. I'm just curious about what what's going into that that development. Um, I guess uh, late 19th century, I'm not even sure exactly when this kind of classification became, became popular. Sorry, do you mean what kind of um, thoughts are, are motivating it in the first place, Peter? Correct, yeah. What's, what's motivating the, the, the genre classification of the Psalms? I, I think one of the key
3: motivations was to try to determine the setting in life in Israel's ritual and, and cultic life that these psalms originally arose from. Uh, And the logic was that if we can discern particular forms, particular patterns, then we may be able to move the original context of composition uh, of a psalm into a particular cultic ritual, cultic setting, or, or time period. And so I think one of the aims was to get behind the text, not uh, like you're saying, not necessarily in a in a skeptical way, but to understand what sort of life situations the psalm arose from and what sorts of liturgical moments they would have been utilized in.
2: You can maybe think of it as something akin to someone in a few thousand years' time discovering um a liturgy from one of our churches and the various hymns that were sung as detached documents. And then considering how would these actually fit into the life of the people um, or someone finding a recipe. Um, A recipe is not just something you read as poetry. It's something that has a setting in life, which is the kitchen and the process of preparing a meal. And if you abstract it from that context. It can become something weird and foreign. Um, Likewise, if you're reading a snatch of a Shakespearean play, it helps to have some recognition of its proper setting on the stage. Um, And when we're reading these Psalms, if they were set in the context of some, um, in the context of, let's say, the Feast of Tabernacles, it helps to fill in some of the gaps, just as it might fill in some of the gaps if you're reading against the context of um, your church worship and the various actions of the ministers, um, the liturgy that goes with that, and the particular things that are said by the congregation, certain things that are said by the presiding minister, and then other actions that accompany that. And that helps you to understand and interpret the text itself.
3: The danger, of course, of that l- line of inquiry is overconfidence in our ability to extrapolate a life setting or a cultic setting from the discernible patterns in the Psalms. And that can cause scholars to, cry to, to try to recreate cultic situations or cultic ceremonies that we don't necessarily have evidence for mm-hmm. in Scripture, but... When looking at the form of a of a particular psalm with this particular lens of investigation, it it can become quite tempting to come up with a totalizing framework that offers ritual and cultic and social explanations for the development of all of these psalms.
4: I wonder, Trevor, if a related danger is that we start to kind of treat the psalms in a way that's contrary to the way in which they're presented to us um, as you were praying before we started, Trevor, and, and thanking God for the book of the Psalms. I was thinking, you know, what what would we miss as believers if we didn't have um, the Psalms? And, you know, we, we'd miss all sorts of, of th- things, um, all sorts of ways to express our emotions and complaints and requests and worship and uh, and so forth. And we could obviously borrow um, psalm-like, uh, well, psalms from elsewhere in scripture so from uh, 2 Samuel 22 or Exodus 15 or, or, or wherever but I think that I would feel less confident um, borrowing and sort of personalizing a psalm like that if I was lifting it out of the explicit content context that I am reciting and reading and praying through a psalm because I, I feel that the fact that they're presented to us largely divorced from context, kind of frees us up, I think, to incorporate them to all of life and in all sorts of different liturgical settings. And so I don't have to be kind of, you know, on the run from an apostate king to pray certain Psalms or I don't have to be in the belly of a fish to appeal to Psalm 42 or or, or something. I I can uh, incorporate them in in my life a lot more easily. That seems to be one of the ways in which The principles by
2: which the book of Psalms was compiled to um, relate specific historical contexts, for instance, in the life of David, to the ongoing worship of the people of God. Um, It's one insight that I found very helpful from Brevard Charles in the context of his canonical criticism that many contexts. Within scripture are underdetermined from the text itself. We can speculate about them, but the context is not given to us. The fact that these texts are present within scripture is not so much about their power in speaking into their original context, but their continuing work as a voice of God into the life of his people. Um, And when we start to imprison these texts within their original historical or Cultic contexts, we're losing something about what the text itself is and what the purpose of those texts is in corralling all of our different experiences throughout generations into these fundamental um, frameworks of relating to God that are provided to us by people like um, David or Asaph or the sons of Korah.
3: Along those lines, it's interesting to note often how non specific the prayers themselves are. If they wanted to, the Psalms could have been written in highly particularized language that delimited the settings where their prayer would be appropriate. But often we find the descriptions of suffering to be remarkably transferable to a a variety of contexts that Israel may have faced or that we today may face. Even when you look at the way that references to the enemies populate the Psalms, only seldom are the enemies actually identified. And then they are often nations who symbolically stand in the history of Israel uh, as agents of oppression more generally. But in the personal laments, the individual laments, the enemy is never given a name. And many scholars have noted that the anonymity of the enemies, the general descriptions that are offered, are specifically designed and intended to be taken up and transferred into the life of God's people going forward.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a helpful. A couple couple thoughts occur to me. One is, um, uh, what what do we make of the historical superscriptions? Um, have you any of you done a study of that and how? reliable they are, how much they should guide our reading of the Psalter. The other the other question is more one of context within the Psalter. And one of the I think one of the dangers of a form critical approach would be to you, you you would rearrange the Psalter basically into classifications and miss, perhaps miss links that are intended by the way that the Psalms are arranged in the canonical Psalter. So I mean, there are a variety of different uh, suggestions about some kind of narrative structure to the to the Psalter, to the five books of the Psalter, that it's telling the story of David or the story of the Davidic dynasty and the story of the Davidic dynasty's collapse and, and resurgence, the story of the exile and the return. So, uh, I think there, those readings can be very plausible, and so um, uh, that's that's another kind of context that could be missed if you're if you're focusing too heavily. On the genre, criti- uh, genre question, but uh, back to my first point: w- What about the historical superscription? Should we think, for example, Psalm three actually did come from the time when uh, David was fleeing from Absalom? Is that part of the text, or is that something added by a later editor? It obviously
4: could be could be both in in a sense, couldn't it? I mean, um, certainly, every time in the New Testament a psalm is attributed to David, we have it down as a Psalm of David in the um, uh, Masoretic text in terms of the superscription, and we don't find Hebrew manuscripts, far as I'm aware, at least without these superscriptions. So I- I'm not aware of any reason to treat it as secondary in, in in any way.
3: Yes, I think when we look at the canonical form of God's word, as as James said, the New Testament takes those as. Authoritative, And whether it was a redactor uh, composing uh, the final form of the Psalter for Israel's liturgical life or the original composer of the psalm himself, the text that we have uh, that is part of our canon uh, offers these superscriptions to us and uh, I think ought to be received as the faithful and authoritative direction of God.
2: I'm not sure how we should regard the superscriptions, um, whether they are part of the Psalms themselves or later editions. They do give us a very clear sense, though, I think, of the way that the Psalms were used um, and the way in which there is a correspondence, for instance, between the story of David in 1 Samuel and the Psalms of David that were intended to recognise the context of the Davidic Psalms primarily In the story of a David in distress, a David prior to becoming king in many respects, there are a couple of other Psalms um, that aren't in the context of him fleeing from Saul and other things like that um, after Nathan's confrontation um, and then during the coup of Absalom, but both David in distress. Um, I think what we see within these superscriptions is an encouragement to have that sort of cross-pollination within the um, canon to recognise that these texts belong together. This is something that Gordon Wenham has pointed out, that they help us to discern the greater order and structure within the Psalter itself, they help us to understand the considerations that guided the arrangers of the Psalter. It's not just the original people who composed the psalms, but they were brought together into this larger set of collections and then single collection. And within these, I think we're also seeing something about the way in which the Psalms were read in terms of the story of the suffering David and an invitation through that as Christians to read the story of the suffering son of David in the Psalms. And so in the historical superscriptions, we're having an invitation and a precedent for engaging in messianic reading of the Psalms. Mm -hmm. Um, I think whether these are original superscriptions or later ones, I think they provide us with that precedent, with that encouragement to see in these texts something more than just some original historical referent. It's an ongoing experience of the people of God. It's a messianic expectant reading as well.
3: That's consistent with the way the Gospels utilize many of these Psalms as well. Several studies in the Gospels' echoes and allusions of the Psalter in particular have noted that Psalms of Lament are echoed frequently, particularly in the Passion narratives of the Gospels, as part of a much larger project of presenting Jesus as the suffering and vindicated Davidic King. So as you were saying, Alistair, the the superscriptions in the Psalms themselves allow us to read them forward toward the son of David, Jesus Christ, but also the utilization of the New Testament authors, not just in their quotes, thus said the spirit through the mouth of David, but in their implicit echoes and allusions, the way that they are presenting Jesus by means of the Psalms as the messianic son, the heir in the Davidic line, I think further substantiates the significance of those superscriptions for us
4: today. Just a quick comment, perhaps, about order of psalms. It does seem to me that often a psalm will pick up on its context in terms of the wider psalter, I mean, right from the word go, in fact. So, I mean, in Psalm 1, you know, we're introduced to two uh, types of men, I guess, the the righteous and the wicked, and it talks about their various um, ways. And then in the second psalm, the way in which the um, righteous man meditates on The law we're then introduced to these um, kings and and rulers who um, meditate against God and and formulate plans It's the same um, word which is used there. And so Psalm 2 sort of picks up on Psalm 1 in that sense, but then Psalm 3 goes and picks up on Psalm 2. So whereas in Psalm 2, the holy hill is God's holy hill is this source of um, uh, terror and angst to the rulers of the earth in Psalm 3 for the righteous man the holy hill is a source of deliverance from where um god's prayers uh, are answered and so um it it picks up on that way and then it continues you know psalm 4 picks up the glory mentioned in psalm 3 and talks about um whereas uh, psalm 3 is about how god has glorified psalm 4 is about how uh, the unrighteous has turned God's glory into shame, and it, it it continues like that. So it feels like you can often, uh, by looking at key words, pick up a real um, uh, significance to the order of Psalms. Mm-hmm.
1: What, what do you think about the suggestions of the the wider sequences that I was I was talking about earlier? That there's a uh, either an overall kind of narrative structure of the whole Psalter, or uh, there's a uh, at least there are sequences of psalms, not only that have those kind of hook words that that uh, link them together, but also there's a kind of. This is a suggestion that's coming from uh, Jim Hamilton's forthcoming commentary on the Psalms, but he he's looking at the the fifth book of the Psalms uh, and the way that you move from the from uh, Psalm 110 with the exaltation of the King. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make enemies your footstool. You have a sequence of halal psalms that uh, I think it's pretty well established to have been used as a as a collection of psalms in uh, in Jewish liturgies. And that leads up to a psalm of Torah and then the psalms of ascent. So you have this the establishment of a king, the praise that greets the establishment of the king, the law delivered by the king who now reigns at the right hand of uh, of Yahweh and then the gathering of of uh, the people to Zion as they ascend back into the land and send back to the uh, back to the holy hill in the Psalms of Ascent. So, uh, if you look at it from a certain distance, you, it does seem like you have a narrative sequence going on in those Psalms. Uh, what do you all think of that kind of uh, that kind of approach? Does that seem plausible to you? Do you have an understanding of, of the Psalter overall that uh, has helped to illuminate uh, illuminate the book?
2: I think that connection is something that can appear. If you step back, certain patterns start to become plain. For instance, the opening psalm is very much, as many have seen, it's a sort of heading for the entire Psalter. It's a way in which we are ushered into this larger body of material, and then Psalm 2 again frames the material that follows. And at the very end, of course, it ends with these crashing chords of this great um, these great declarations of praise to the Lord. And so there's a very natural movement in that way. Then you see on a smaller level, there are psalms that are very clearly in close dialogue with the psalms that are next to them. So you're talking about Book 5 of the Psalter, and perhaps the strongest example of this is Psalms 111 and 112, which are both acrostic psalms back to back. One is declaring the character of God, and one is deca- declaring the character of the righteous person and there are key hook words but beyond that if you hold their statements side by side you can see parallels and it's an invitation to see the way in which the righteous person reflects the character of god and on that smaller level you can see that the ordering of these psalms is not accidental but then i think that carries over to an extent to the larger level even if it's fairly loose, we can see this fundamental pattern. And from that, I think we can understand that careful thought has gone into the structuring of this. This, The design of this text is not just a grab bag of individual psalms, but it's a body of material that has, at the very least, a structure to it, if not an argument. Mm.
4: Yeah, I I like the sound of um, Jim's structure of it a lot. And um, I wonder in part, Peter, if that answers your original question about how does categorisation help us? Maybe it doesn't in terms of an individual psalm and the detailed study of of one in isolation, but it does help us to recognise these patterns and a cluster of, say, psalms to do with kingship and enthronement that we might gloss over if we didn't have any kind of category in mind.
3: I also think it's, it's helpful to see in the structure of the five books, a, a Pentateuch of Psalms, if you will, really the entire history of Israel. Uh, Davidic Psalms populate the first two books, full of, of suffering and the hope of vindication leading up to this climactic Psalm 72 that celebrates the royal son, who brings justice to the earth, subdues the nations, receives tribute from them, and extends the glory of God such that it fills the earth as his cosmic house. Book three moves into the devastation of exile, the loss of the land, uh, the the crumbling of the Davidic dynasty, and ends with this plea, Lord, have you forgotten the promise that you made to David? With book four, we have the the Yahweh reigns psalms, these promises and hopes that God is yet king. He does reign. He will keep his promises. And book four ends with uh, Psalms 104 to 106, which basically journey through redemptive history from the very beginning of, of creation throughout Israel's life with God, rehearsing what he has done, uh, how he has made his covenant, and been faithful to his word, even in spite of Israel's rebellion. And then finally, we get book five, which opens with Psalm 107, which is a calling of the exiles back into the land. And at the end of book five, we curiously find another collection of Davidic Psalms, mm-hmm. this time uh, suffering, but moving into ultimate victory that establishes something of an Edenic Temple kingdom of God in the land, which elicits the final five or six psalms, which shout hallelujah to the Lord.
1: Yeah, the reappearance of Davidic psalms in Book Five is is curious, isn't it? You have a majority of psalms in the first two books that are Davidic, attributed to David, and then not nearly as many in the in the in the central books. But then you have this cluster in the final book, which, as I think it, it fits with what Alistair was saying. You not only have historical links, but you have this uh, eschatological messianic uh, trajectory that's coming from the Psalter. It's as if you're going past the end of the Davidic dynasty and looking forward to David again, but he's going to be a new messianic David.
3: A shoot rising from the stump of Jesse appears in the structure of the Psalms. And yes, I think the structure of the Psalter itself commends that sort of eschatological hope that The Davidic dynasty will yet arise, and that agent will be God's mediator of blessing for Israel and the world.
0: Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those.